Over the years, I've preached in numerous different churches, and I've often asked the question, which biblical character do you most readily identify with? And I think whenever I've done that, although there have been numerous answers, in every church, someone has always said Simon Peter. And I think people always say Simon Peter because they identify with a man who was impetuous, a man who often spoke, sometimes before apparently he thought. What interests me is that a number of weeks ago I was asked to speak on Simon Peter, the leader. And I realised that so often I focused on the early part of his life and ministry. But later we find that he's someone who's described as an elder, as a pillar in the church. Simon Peter was truly a man who was transformed through his relationship with Jesus. And although the incident that we've just read happens to be in the early part of his life and his walk with Jesus, I want you to understand that this is one of those means that Jesus used in order to transform him. The name Simon means hear, one who heard. And one who heard, heard the call of Jesus. The one who heard, heard the promise of Jesus that he would become a rock. He would become sound, strong, dependable, substantial. Not flaky, not wavy, not just impetuous, but one who was well considered. And so although we are looking at this one incident, I want you to understand that this is one of a chain of events that Jesus used with Simon Peter. Just as he uses a chain of events in our life in order to shape us and change us and conform us and transform us to be the people that he calls us to be. So, the passage starts by telling us immediately after this. Immediately after Jesus fed 5,000 people with the contents of a small boy's picnic. Actually, that's not entirely true. There were 5,000 men plus women and children fed from the contents of a small boy's picnic. So immediately after this, we find that Jesus insisted that the disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. It'd be really interesting to get the four Gospels, harmonise them together and try to work out the travel plan. Because it seems to me that Jesus and his disciples were constantly zigzagging across the lake of Galilee. The Lake of Galilee is about 12, 13 miles in one direction and seven or eight in the other. And actually now it's very sparsely populated. But 2,000 years ago, there was lots of fishing towns that sprung up around the lake. Some with populations, archaeologists tell us, as large as 20,000 people. So we find that Jesus and his disciples minister to this group of people and then they jump in the boat, they cross to the other side and minister to a group of another town. But we find here that Jesus and his disciples 
they left, but they left and headed in different directions. You see, we know that they left because John tells us this, that after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people, the people exclaimed, surely he is the prophet that we've been waiting but Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king and slipped away by himself. The people essentially wanted Jesus to be driven to Jerusalem. They wanted him to become their king, the king of a kingdom, the king of an earthly kingdom. But we find that Jesus sent the disciples away in order that he could slip away and be by himself. Apart from, that's not entirely true. Jesus didn't slip away in order to be by himself. Jesus slipped away in order to pray, in order to fellowship, in order to commune, in order to spend time with his Father in heaven. And I think that this is something else that occurs time after time after time in the Gospels. You see, the life of Jesus was a life that was saturated in prayer. After he did something that was significant, before he did something that was significant, Jesus would find himself in a solitary place. He woke up early in the morning to pray. He prayed at night and then he prayed all night. He prayed in a garden, he prayed on a hill, he prayed by the coast. Jesus would seek to take himself away from the crowd, away from the masses, in order to relate to his Father who was in heaven. And so I want you to picture the scene for a moment. Here we have Jesus alone communing with his Father on the hillside, but then we find the disciples far away from land on the sea. But now these disciples find themselves in a predicament. They find themselves with a problem. They find themselves in trouble because Matthew tells us that a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. I want to share four things with you from this passage this morning. And the first is this. It's the inevitability of storms. Lake Galilee is 200 metres below sea level. I want you to picture it. To the west, we have the sea. To the east, we have mountains. And because of that, hot air and cold air clash and fight for supremacy. Because of that, we find that storms just blow up very, very quickly. Now, although much has changed in Israel in 2,000 years ago, the lay of the land hasn't changed an iota. And even today we find waves of two metres or even three metres literally not there and then whipped up as this hot air meets the cold air and a storm seems to come out of nowhere. Now two or three metres might not seem so substantial for modern craft. But we find that these fishermen who were in this boat crossing as per Jesus' instructions had quite volatile boats. 
In fact, we find in John's Gospel that they were so volatile, they were so fragile, that 153 fish threatened to sink one of them. I want you to understand that storms are inevitable. Do you remember that storm I was noticing on the way down Seven Oaks? It was 1987, wasn't it? Who remembers that? For some, that's ancient history, isn't it? For others, it feels like yesterday. Was it Michael Fish, the weatherman, wasn't it? Who said there's no storm coming? And the poor man that must live with him to his dying day. I want you to understand that we're now talking not about storms, however, as weather patterns. But let's consider storms as a metaphor for things that blow up in our lives. Crisis, problems, struggles, difficulties. You see, the reality is that we often find ourselves where nothing could be better where everything is going well. And then we get a knock on the door. Or we get a phone call. Or a partner asks to see us. Or we have what we thought was just an ordinary visit to the doctor, but it becomes something more significant. Or an employer calls us to speak to us in their office. And all of a sudden, what seemed to be smooth sailing it's like a storm that's blown up. We find ourselves in turmoil. We find ourselves in fear. I want you to understand that however holy, however righteous, however good living we may be as Christians, however full of faith that we are, we're not exempt from the storms of life. Jesus said that we'd be persecuted. Jesus said we find ourselves in trouble. And although we thank God for supernatural healing when it comes, Christians still fall sick, find themselves in difficulties in terms of relationships, find themselves facing unemployment. Storms in life are a fact that were present then and are present now. Second thing I just want to share with you is that we find Jesus here in the storm. If you've shared with anyone about your Christian faith, you will know that the greatest objection that people will raise against a Christian faith is that question of suffering. How can you believe in a God of love if there is such abject suffering in the world? Now, I've not got time to unpack that this morning. There's some great stuff online. There's some fabulous books and lectures that have been written and given about this. But I just want to share with you this, that here we find Jesus, not absent, but present in the midst of the storm. Isn't that precious? I love the fact that Jesus was praying for his disciples. I love the fact that Romans tells us that Jesus still prays for you and for me. But I love that Jesus didn't remain in the safety of the hillside. Instead, he descended to the lake, to the place that was messy and wet and windy, to that place where it must 
of, for him in his humanity and even felt vulnerable in order to reveal himself to the disciples as they found themselves in the midst of their fear, their predicament, their fight with life itself. In the Old Testament, we find that there are many words given, many prophecies, many predictions about the coming Saviour, all of which are realised in Jesus. But I love the fact that Isaiah calls him the suffering servant, one who would be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Jesus not only left the hillside to descend to the lake, it's this Jesus that left the glory of heaven in order to descend to this earth, to reveal himself to you, to me, to those who were outcasts, to those who were disenfranchised, to those who were marginalised. It was Jesus who touched the leper. It was Jesus who identified with the woman of disrepute. It was Jesus who went where so many people would not be willing to go. And so here we find that Jesus makes himself known we find in the Gospels that this was the fourth watch. It was between three o'clock and six o'clock. The disciples were not only fearful, they must have been exhausted. I suspect that they'd been battling the wind and the waves for hours. And then as this boat was rocking and tilting and being tossed from side to side, they saw a figure, a mysterious figure, that was walking towards them. I might be wrong, but I wonder if Jesus was there one minute and gone the next. He was obscured by the next wave that crashed against the boat. At first they thought it was a ghost. That wasn't a theological statement. These were superstitious fishermen. But then we discovered Jesus saying, don't be afraid, take courage, I am here. I don't know if this is true. As someone once told me that these words, don't be afraid, appear 366 times in scripture. It's one for every day of the year and another thrown in for year. That may be true, that may not be true, but how often do we find that when God appears, in the person of Jesus or through an angelic visitation. He brings this word, he brings this comfort, he brings this hope. He says, do not be afraid because I am here. I don't know what it is that you are going through this morning. Maybe you've got a problem in a relationship. Maybe you've recently had a visit to the doctor that didn't go as you hoped. Maybe you are finding yourself in a crisis within the workplace. I don't know what it is, but there is one who does, and it's the one who still brings this word of comfort, this word of hope. He's still one who says, don't be afraid, because I am here. Isn't that precious? That we are not guaranteed 
to avoid the storms. But when we find ourselves in the storms of life, Jesus descends in order to stand with us, one who's closer than a brother, one who identifies with us, not when we feel strong or powerful, but identifies with us when we feel weak and vulnerable. And just as he spoke 2,000 years ago, so today he still brings these words of comfort, of hope, of promise. Do not be afraid, for I am here. So we come to the third thing that I want to share this morning. And it's no surprise, but it's faith. It's faith in the midst of the storm. Verse 28, then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. So why is it that Peter said that? Do you think he was just showing off? Do you think he was bravado? Do you think he was trying to impress his mates? I might be wrong, but I've got my own suspicion. I think Peter knew that if this really was Jesus, and he wanted to get to Jesus, however Jesus was coming to him, he knew that if it really was Jesus, then he could do with Jesus what he couldn't do without him. That extraordinary. See, Peter couldn't walk on water. He was a fisherman. He spent all his life in and around water. He knew that he couldn't be so foolish in his own humanity. But given this appeared to be Jesus, the evidence was this, that he could do without him, with him, what he couldn't do without him. So how did Peter do? Well, first of all, we find that he went over the side of the boat. I know that that sounds really obvious, but actually it's quite significant. There's a picture there of somebody abseiling. Who's ever abseiled? Who's ever got jittery when you found yourself in the place of no return? It's all right, isn't it, when you're walking up the tower and you're climbing to the top of the cliff? But it's when you lean and you know you've led and you've come to the place of no return. It's just now between you and the rope. He went over the side of the boat. It was firstly that leg and then this leg and then he reached the place of no return. And Matthew tells us that he started to, and I know it sounds obvious, but walk on the water. It was left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, as he walked towards Jesus. But then Matthew tells us those words that so many of us know so well. But then, he saw Jesus, but then, he saw the strong wind and the waves, and he was terrified and began to sing. I want you to picture yourself in the midst of this storm. I want you to picture Peter in the midst of this storm. He sees Jesus and Jesus calls. He starts to walk towards him, fixing his eyes upon him. But then he looks down and he looks up and he looks around as another breaker is coming his way. 
and he starts to see. There, in a snapshot, we see the most incredible faith and we see the most incredible doubt. I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, you find that these things sometimes run in parallel. You trust Jesus one minute and not the next. But what do we see? Lastly, we see this grace in the midst of the storm. Jesus immediately, isn't that precious? Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Now, I've got no evidence for what I'm about to say. You might want to disagree. But I suspect that Jesus spoke those words more loudly than I've just spoke them now because he was in the midst of a storm. But I suspect he spoke them as kindly as I spoke them then. Even his rebuke had a tone of mercy within it. The way that he chastised his disciple was evidence of his grace. You see, Jesus ultimately loves it when we're willing to start to walk towards him. He wants to encourage that faith. He wants to cultivate that faith. I want you to imagine one of these children here with their parents who started to walk for the first time. When they started to walk for the first time, it was inevitable that they were going to fail. But no father and mother would say, get up and go again. Every father and mother would say, don't fall, try again. Simon Peter, why do you doubt me? You have such little faith. You can do this. You can do with me what you cannot do without me. Keep your eyes fixed upon me, not just to focus on the circumstances, the situation, the problem, the wind or the waves, but keep focus upon me. So, how do we land that and what do we learn from it? How do we apply these lessons to our everyday lives? Well, I think there's three things that I want to raise. And the first is this, that storms are inevitable. And if you're not facing one today, there's a possibility that you or I could face one tomorrow. But we need to be those who do two things. Firstly, we need to be those who are willing to get out of the boat. That is our place of comfort, that place that we have confidence in. Now, it must have seemed for Simon Peter to get out of the boat must have been very vulnerable. But I would suggest that that was the safest place to be in the will and to be in the plan and to be in the purpose of God. So often we rely on our own resources, the things that become familiar, the things that we are experienced with. But you know if Jesus says, come, we need to be willing to get out of the boat and come. 
This is not confession, but I am a Manchester City fan. And over the years, I've sat in the stands of the Etihad, and I criticised some of the greatest football players on the planet. Jeff has seen me play football, and Jeff must think, what right have you got to criticise anybody? And so often, I've read this scripture concerning Simon Peter, and I've stood in judgment on him. Isn't it foolish? Isn't it silly? There he goes again, taking his eyes off Jesus. How often do you or me do exactly the same? Simon Peter was willing to get out of the boat. And when we're willing to get out of the boat, even if we blow it, we find that God's love conquers our fear. We find that his forgiveness outruns our sin. We find that his patience is stronger than our rebellion. We find his grace more powerful than our doubt. And so when we are willing to step out of the boat, there needs to be that encouragement to keep your eyes on Jesus. Not to look at your situation, your circumstances. Not to look at the waves or the wind. I suspect that many years later, when people were writing up the Gospels, Simon Peter had to sit down over a bottle of cocoa. And he had to share with others exactly what his experiences of Jesus were. And again, this is conjecture, and I might be wrong, but I suspect that he wished he hadn't ever taken his eyes off Jesus. But I'm sure of this, that he never regretted the fact that he got out of the boat, and he really did walk on water. So I encourage you not to remain in that place where you think he's safe, or you think he's secure, but to venture by faith to the place where Jesus is calling you to come. And when you blow it, his grace is still sufficient for you and for me. And when you blow it, fix your eyes again on the one who stands in the midst of your soul and mine and says, do not be afraid, for I am here. Amen.